Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Connor Chato. And I'm your co-host, Joyla Ferlano. And we are joined by Evelyn Newland. Welcome, Hi. Evelyn. Do you go by Evelyn or do you have a short form? I, I have several different names. Evie it's Evelyn Everett uh, Surrey. Evie or anything? Yeah, I've got, I've got that. It's, and I spell it like the Pokemon even. Nice. <laughs> nice. nice. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Evelyn, you're a Some second year anyway. master's student in oh. anthro. Is that correct? Anthropology? Yeah, second year. And uh, whose lab are you in? Lab. Mm-hmm. Who's your supervisor? Uh, yeah, Kim Clark's. Right? Oh, okay, great. Um, so I'm super excited to hear about your research. So maybe we'll just dive right into it. Okay. Um, <laughs> so do you want to maybe just tell us a little bit about the goal of your research or what you're currently working on? So I guess um, a lot of it comes down to sort of centering the real perspectives and um, sort of lives of um, trans people over the sort of major conceptions of being transgender in a lot of mainstream narratives, whether they be medical or political or otherwise. Um, I have a better kind of like... Uh, elevator pitch for this thing, but I have completely forgotten it. At this moment, so. <laughs> That's okay. That's always, it always comes down to the moment. Eh? Right. Uh, so I, I, I'm interested in, you talk about a couple different angles. You say medical or political, or um, is there a specific version of this you're looking at, or a specific version you're avoiding talking about? Or I think that a lot of it really just comes more down to focusing on kind of the um, perspectives and realities of trans people. So I think that, like, just to go off of what you just said with medical and political things, there are ways that kind of, like, mainstream sorts of discourses sort of have a kind of power over both of those things. So, like, on a medical level, there's this idea that trans people are pretty much defined by the medical things that they might do, whether it's hormones or surgery or whatever. And then there are certain kinds of political aspects where you see some people uh, talking about how it's like, yeah, I'm okay with trans people and all that kind of thing, but not this like far left gender ideology and all that. So that's um, kind of an issue. I, I do think that like I want to focus on the political characteristics of um, trans people's lives, but I want to be centering people's own terms in that way, like my own participants um, and the community at, uh, on a wider level, if it can be considered a community, it's quite modeled. Right. Uh, this is, I, I, I guess, another in interesting thing. Like, how does, how does your research look on a day-to-day -day basis? Like, what's the mechanism of your of your work. It's interesting that you should say day to day. I think that a lot of people at the point that I'm at are no longer kind of in the field, but in my case, like the field is kind of my own day to day life. Interesting. Um, so like, I think it really depends. A lot of it does actually go on um, through the internet, um, which I think is worth uh, mentioning, but it's also like very much from the community. I find myself often in this situation where like, as part of my own work, if I have something I'm contemplating, something I want to integrate in my thesis and all that, I try to go and actually start up conversations with my participants um, through the internet, being like, what do you think of this and that and whatever, you know, people I've already sort of had conversations with about this and recorded before and um, kind of conduct these uh, conversations on their terms. Um, a lot of the time they're having that dialogue is a whole lot more useful anyway. So you're conducting a series of conversations um, mm -hmm. and, and mining those conversations, I guess, for 
a series of ideas. What 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 have you found within those conversations? What are some things that typically come up that you've maybe started to focus on? Uh, I mean, like, it's really, really hard to narrow that question down. <laughs> One big thing that does come out is, as I kind of um, alluded to earlier, this is a very heterogeneous uh, kind of community, if you want to consider it a right. community. That's a, a term that can sometimes be uh, that, that, that that's kind of controversial in certain areas of anthropology, but mm-hmm. um, I think it makes sense to consider there to be a series of transgender communities. Um, the big thing is that like there are a lot of different voices sort of bound up in all of that, and it's important to get at the way that different trans people are relating to being transgender in very different ways. There, even you could say that like people are transgender for different reasons. Is there a motive to maybe separate the 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 term into kind of like subsections or So that's an interesting question. Um I so like I, I kind of want to go into some of the work I've been doing on the ground in that way. Right. So like I've had one so just to talk about for instance like if we're going to focus on stuff to do with um, medicine, I like to focus on sort of the cultural characteristics of how people are interpreting that and relating to it and finding significance in it rather than considering it kind of the core issue. Like mm-hmm. a lot of people do kind of approach trans, uh, you know, social research with trans people from a perspective that the definitive characteristic uh, is stuff to do with hormones and surgery, uh, for instance. But rather, I'm kind of like trying to get at the significance of that. So um, one participant of mine, uh, for her, her her being transgender and her dysphoria and um, the nature of her transition was pretty much entirely tied to... Um, tied to this medical question. She was going through a great deal of grief um, until such time as it kind of culminated in, you know, like it, it was it was at a life-threatening scale, basically. Right. We'll put it that way. Um, and it was at that point where it became clear to her parents that she really, really did need to go through the medical um, treatment and all that. And uh, since she went through with all that, like... That was really the beginning and ending of um, a lot of her relationship with being transgender, but she still considers herself transgender to this day. So she no longer has dysphoria mm-hmm. and all that because those characteristics that were causing her dysphoria are taken care of. Meanwhile, I have other um, participants f- who tried um, medical um, procedures, you know, started taking HRT, hormonal, uh, you know, um, hormone replacement therapy um, in various forms and found that it was not for them. In fact, they even uh, mentioned feeling like it was just something they were supposed to do that did not work for them. They Mm -hmm. were relating with being transgender for very different reasons. Um, And then I had, like for my own part, I was transitioning, quote unquote, that's also an issue, a, a term I'm looking to really interrogate here. I was transitioning on a kind of a social level for a very, very long time before I started on any kind of hormonal um, mm-hmm. stuff. That was the predominant essence of it. And then I had one participant even where like, uh, they liked certain aspects of their, um, of what um, testosterone was doing for them and not others. Yeah. And after being on it for a full year, they got off and they actually said that that was the ideal state to be in, that they kind of got the changes to their voice and 
various other things that they wanted and didn't feel a need to keep on taking it after that point. So people have very different ways of relating to that. And what I'm trying to get at here is that despite all of that, that relationship to being transgender for very different reasons, they still all find meaning in that kind of thing and can have conversations with each other and seriously relate to each other's experiences. Myself and all those other kinds of people, if you were to put them in a room together, you would find that that umbrella term, if you wanted to think of it that way, is actually quite meaningful on that level. So I wouldn't actually say that it makes sense to um, to sort of like uh, cordon them off as different things going on. Right. So to look at it as a complex term, but not a, but a term that still has has a lot of meaning that you sh- you don't need to really partition it up into in order for it to actually be a useful thing to talk about. Yeah. No, I mean like despite having very different reasons for being transgender. Pretty much everyone has a certain degree of shared experience and shared association with the term and kind of, I think to me that's one of the things that's that's indicative of community being a term that's meaningful in this sense is that they're all taking part in this wider kind of, I guess, sort of community political discourse, even though they Mm -hmm. might find themselves in different situations and sometimes in certain cases might even find themselves in antagonistic situations with each other over uh, what all of this means. So I have a question. So is the goal of your research really because you're doing such unstructured kind of (laughs) interviewing, if you will, um, are you just trying to reach as many uh, transgender people as possible and kind of just learn their experiences? And do you find it difficult to kind of analyze the data that you're collecting because everybody has a different experience? I think that a lot of um, a lot of the time because we're missing the complexity of these heterogeneous experiences, we find ourselves working toward answers to the wrong questions. And I am more interested in kind of trying to figure out what the right questions are to be asking in the first place. Um, so. When I'm doing this kind of generative um, research, and it's not all just um, interview. I mean, like I don't even like the term interviewing because, mm-hmm. uh, especially more recently, like over the last few months, more and more it's just been like, when I have a conversation with a participant going and I start recording it or whatever, that's because we already had that conversation happening, right. and um, I think that it's important to pay attention to how d- different. Uh, how these are conversations that we're often just having on a day-to-day basis about very, very complex um, characteristics of our um, lives and the politics that are bound up in that. Um, Like, I think that it reveals something, it reveals the things that really need need to be looked at rather than, um, I think that sometimes we're jumping up, barking up the wrong tree. And I mean that not just like, outside of the trans community, try to conceptualize it. But even on an internal level, people are often simplifying things a great deal for the sake of, I don't know, kind of casting a kind of simplicity to the terms that isn't really there. Right. Uh, does that yeah. answer your question? So you kind of just take it as it comes. It's kind of a learning experience through your conversation. It's definitely emergent. I think that okay. that's part of the entire, part of the idea of doing this kind of ethnographic work is that you find themes that you um, 
you find you find the important themes rather than kind of going out there with like a question to be answered. You go out there finding what's important to be talking about in the first place. And you mentioned that uh, using the internet is probably the most convenient way to reach people. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> do you? So is there a difference in your experience between kind of talk, talking to these people over the internet, talking to people in person, um, and what does that look like? I would say that there is a difference that is a great deal less profound than one might think. Um, I, it's really interesting to me how so much of the um, of kind of like modern trans discourse is articulated around stuff that emerges on the internet. I think that there are a lot of reasons for that on a, sort of a historical level that like being able to network through the internet um, rather than in spaces where just being transgender would be absolutely alienating and incriminating mm-hmm. and um, dangerous mm-hmm. uh, when you can kind of find solidarity and shared experience and vocabulary through the internet that is um, you know quite powerful so a lot of like I mean to put it quite simply a whole lot of trans people are absolute nerds um, <laughs> like and it shows even when you're engaging in you know in in meat space, you know, like outside yeah. of the internet, yeah. Yeah. like you start talking with a lot of, you, you, you have some kind of a local trans community meeting thing and people will be throwing around like stupid internet jokes all over the place. <laughs> it's <laughs> like ridiculous. Um, but like, uh, yeah, I mean, I would say that it's always more productive to have, you know, kind of things where you're meeting in you know actual world situations mm-hmm. if you wanted to put it that way that's a very contested term but um like s- certain things definitely come out that don't through the internet but i'm also trying to reach a very diverse audience and um a lot of trans people suffice to say are afraid to even leave the house mm-hmm. so it's um important to be able to get at you know the places where people actually feel safe and capable of talking about these things. So are you trying to reach people within a certain area or kind of like countrywide, province-wide, worldwide? What I'm trying to do and what happens, of course, are going to be very different things. Right. (laughs) Uh, Ideally, I would love to have just like a large um, sort of demographic span and all that, but it's way easier to um, contact certain people than others. Mm -hmm. The majority of my recruitment for participants has been done through kind of, I guess you could call it snowball sampling if you wanted to, where I'm kind of like starting with my own sort of network, you know, in various different places. I have a lot of um, people in Guelph, for instance, because like it was really through a lot of solidarity in Guelph and the community, the trans community, if you can call it that, in Guelph. It, th- that I kind of was able to explore actually living the way that I do now to the point now where it's like I'm I'm quite capable of holding myself in a way that I was like scared stiff to do before. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Guelph community was like huge for that. I have a whole lot of contacts there. I do have some contacts here in London as well, and I have a lot of contacts through the internet. And basically, I just recruited mostly through word of mouth through. Okay connections that I already had so you're you're talking about uh, a lot of discussions that I you, you used the word complex earlier and just <laughs> I, I kind of wanted to touch on the the apparent readiness it seems that a lot of trans people you talk to are just ready to kind of dive into theory and, and into identity and and talking about these things that um, I, I I think 
often feel kind of academic and feel like is that something you think is sort of unique to the uh, trans people you're speaking to is that there's there's there seems to be a readiness to talk about identity theory and you know pretty fairly complicated topics I wouldn't want to frame this in terms of identity theory so much. A lot of my participants are speaking to things that could certainly be considered within that framework of identity theory, but these aren't people who are actually familiar with a lot of that more kind of academic work. These aren't people who are, you know, these are people where it's like if you say Judith Butler, they'll be like, who's that? Like, these are not people who are familiar with that area of things, but the things that they will be talking about are very much in line with um, the kinds of observations that are typically um, talked about in a lot of kind of gender-based uh, sort of political writing and mm-hmm. all of that. Like, and I mean, like a lot of these people, you know, the kind of sources for for all these things are not that academic themselves. Like Leslie Feinberg, if you read Leslie Feinberg, that's not really academic writing. It's mm-hmm. like she's writing pamphlets that are fairly accessible you know, quite, well, in certain ways, they're actually like overly simplistic in terms of, you know, saying things about how Joan of Arc was transgender and all that kind of thing. That's not quite, mm-hmm. I don't think that that really checks out. It's this kind of trans historical way of understanding who's transgender, but it's still like groundbreaking for its time. And it is not really framed in a very academic way. He's really talking about on the ground political existences of trans people without going into stuff about performity and discourse and all that kind of uh, stuff that's more kind of the Judith, Judith Butler angle. Um, and you, I, I can definitely see that coming out in a lot of um, participants. Some some participants, absolutely. They're just like, I, I can hear this resonance of, um, of Judith Butler in there. But uh, for others, not so much. I think what I'm trying to get at is that all these people are theorizing their own existences, just not in the same terms. Right. Um, for my sake, as well as some of our listeners, can we introduce the ideas of Judith, but- Judith Butler a little bit? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I'm, I, I know that I'm kind of telegraphing right there, yeah. uh, but I, I guess, like, you know, I typically associate Judith Butler with, you know, sort of this idea that gender is predominantly a performative sort of discursive set of actions and all that that is mm-hmm. kind of communicated through things that are done rather than things that people are. Right. Go figure that even though like, I, I mean, I'm also interested in the weird contradictions that this seems to uh, indicate because like at the time, Judith Butler was absolutely arguing this against kind of gender essentialist biological um, norms, but was also kind of like, speaking against really any kind of idea that like gender is a thing you can be it's more of a thing that is done and Mm -hmm. these days it's actually very very important it seems for trans people to be able to just say i am this yeah you know like trans women are women trans men are men trans you know like non-binary people are any number of different things like Mm -hmm. and i do think i also want to emphasize this a little bit that like non-binary people are kind of included in this transgender bracket right here, but I also um, recognize there's a lot of complexity to that whole thing, and uh, that's definitely part of what I'm getting at with my thesis as well. So you've been trying to tackle um, a, a lot of like non-binary discussions as well in your research, or is that I don't sort think of like a next can... step idea? Or I think that they, they're they not really 
something you can cordon off. Um, yeah. I mean, like, I'm using a very technical definition of transgender as, like, of a different gender than one was assigned at birth. Right. Which, again, already has its own problems right there, but mm -hmm. in a way, using it can help you show where it runs up against its own limits. Um, but by that definition, non-binary people must be transgender. Right. Um, and I also think that there is a lot of... I don't think that they can be considered just like completely separate categories, um, which is like pretty important for uh, talking about like, you know, for my own part, like I am non-binary, yeah. but a lot of the time I'm just like fine, fine, fine trans women will do because like talking to people about like the significance of all the stuff that kind of goes beyond that. I mean, sometimes it even just sounds like kind of ridiculous if people don't already have a grounding for understanding all of it and um, yeah like I'm trying to get at why it is that some of these terms that can sound more fanciful have a kind of concrete political reality um, yeah. that comes out in people's day-to-day -day lives is is there a kind of trade-off you you notice in like the decisiveness of terms and giving this kind of concreteness that that people can ascribe to, and also this sense of maybe like inaccuracy, where someone will say, "Well, we've we've pinned down this definition, but that doesn't necessarily feel accurate to my experience." Is is that is is that a kind of big part of your work? What you look for is like when do you when do you make the decision to make a definition, and how helpful is that definition to people versus when do you try and pick apart a definition to. Um, look at more nuance and maybe help people find more accuracy in that. I mean, I think that that's actually a, like a really important um, aspect of all of this. Uh, and, and it's definitely a pattern I have been finding is that a lot of trans people will talk about these more uh, these more nuanced situations only in situations where cis people aren't around, unless like that cis person has shown a cis, by the way, just not transgender, mm -hmm. just get that out of the way. Okay. Um, like they will, it's just like, sometimes it can even be incriminating. I had one like participant mention that like talking about some of the more complicated nuances of this stuff can actually, you know, it's like giving them ammunition. That was the right. term that he used was, I don't want to give them ammunition by like pointing out the ways that some of the big, you know, kind of accepted affirming totologies are, uh, narratives are um, subverted here. So like what trans people talk about when cis people aren't around is a big part of uh, where a lot of this is coming from. Um, and I actually even after after a lot of that came out, I actually had a very recent um, interview uh, conversation, whatever it is, <laughs> with uh, one of my participants where I where the, the same kind of thing came out where it was like, you know, I was like, so this whole thing about gender being a feeling, do you think that's really accurate? And then they were like, well, not really, but it helps to explain it to cis people. And mm -hmm. I then I was like, OK, but so this is something that keeps on coming up. Aren't we sacrificing something if, like, we keep basically simplifying this whole situation to the point of, like, lying, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and then it even, like, leaves the door open for people who are going to be more skeptical of that to kind of come back on us and, like, make us look silly or whatever. And it's just, like, you know, their response was pretty much just, like, at the end of the day, 
I want to just like get through my life without having to justify my existence constantly. Mm -hmm. So that's why it is that I think a lot of the time people go toward those more, um, you know, like as long as we can't be convinced that those conversations will go on uh, with good faith, um, Mm -hmm. we're going to be stuck with like narratives that don't really describe the totality of our lives. Those... Those kind of sound like there's 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 two separate I, I guess goals there in the sense of like there is a goal of um, how do you describe something to this external group which is you know mm-hmm. the the cis observers or listeners and then how do you describe within the the trans communities you're you're talking to um, yeah and. Is there one of those two you're more focused on, or do you think the two kind of work in concert uh, together? I think that, like, there's an extent to which they can be worked in concert. I think that this is also, like, this is not just an ethnography about trans people. It is a, it is an ethnography with, like, sort of transgender characteristics. And I think that mm-hmm. a lot of what I'm going to be saying is stuff that's not going to register for trans pe- for cis people who don't already have enough information that they can engage with this kind of thing on the right terms anyhow it's really kind of i have to be kind of strategic about a lot of what i'm putting out here because like there you know i I am now going to be publishing information for a general public that contains you know the kind of stuff that trans people don't talk about Mm -hmm. when cis people are around so you know there is a bit of an issue with the contradiction of interest right there but i can also tell that you know the people who i have been talking to do have a certain amount of trust that for myself as another trans person and somebody who's able to really make these connections and all that, that I can have this discussion without giving people, <laughs> without giving people ammunition, so right. to speak. Yeah. Um, so that's a lot of what I'm really getting at. But I do think ultimately I, I'm mostly beholden to, you know, sort of my participants and the wider kind of communities that uh, we're all kind of taking part in. Um, right here above all else and so where are you currently with your research are you kind of at the end have you collected all of the data per se uh i think that the data is never going to be fully collected um but i am currently working on writing my thesis um I've got a certain amount of stuff already kind of like written down. Um, A lot of it is sort of just getting my main themes together and then really writing it all out. But yeah, I kind of just got started on, like seriously started on writing this a little while ago. That's exciting. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So there's an end in sight. Yeah, I just have to really, writing can be difficult, you know? (laughs) But I've I've got a lot of interview material. I'm talking like, I think I've got better than 30 interviews now. Wow. wow. That's yeah. what I was going to ask you, how many recordings. people you've interviewed. Yeah. That's awesome. Do you, do you interview the same person multiple times? Uh, yeah, but I'm talking about participants there. Right. Cool. So, yeah. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm really glad you, you got the chance to publish a lot of this stuff. It, I'm happy it's getting out. Yeah. I mean, like, it always, it's, it's the definitely very affirming when I hear that kind of thing from um, my participants, actually, where a lot of the time my interviews have ended off with the two big things that stand out to me are one like I'm really excited to see what comes of this and how this might be 
useful for like educational material and all that. And then two is like that they just found the conversation itself to be productive. They'll say things like, I have never really thought about that particular way that you're putting it before. And it really helps me to understand my own like yeah. kind of life, especially when I give like other people's experience. And I'm like, this person said this, like, yeah. can you relate to that? And they're like, wow, like that makes a lot of sense kind of thing. Cool. Sharing experience awesome. is huge. Yeah, nice. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Evelyn. Yeah, that, right. that marks uh, just about out of time for us. Right. Um, so this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I've been your host, Connor Chato, and my co-host was Joy LaFerlano. We've been speaking with Evelyn Newland, and this episode was produced by Gavin Tolometti. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at gradcastradio. To listen to us, we are CHRW 94.9 every Tuesday at 6 p.m. and every other Thursday at 1.30 p.m. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcast apps like Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, select podcasts have been uploaded to YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you so much for listening and have a great night.